Lucky number 13. That number has always been my favorite. If given the option, whether it be gambling or a video game, nights spent in a haunted house, any sort of choice, 13 will always be my automatic response. I've got it tattooed on my body. I have marathon movie sessions on those fateful Fridays. When I sat down to write this week's episode, I felt a bit more riled up, like this episode would be special, more unique than the rest, because it was chapter 13. And well, the final product, I don't know, maybe it is. You be the judge. But it did get me thinking about how special this whole thing has been. I'm going to get a little bit more personal in this intro. I looked at my hosting site and realized that I posted my first episode a little over two years ago. I was kind of shocked by that. First, because it simply doesn't feel like that much time has passed. And second, because, damn, am I getting old. Time is flying by. The days are long, but the years, those are getting shorter and shorter. Still, two years and 40 episodes. That's just crazy. And what's crazier is that you're all still listening. This started as a hobby, a way for me to focus some of my restless energy during the height of the pandemic and to stop driving my lady insane with house renovation projects. When this first began, we were both locked into professorships in Georgia, and we were living under the assumption that we would be there forever. Maybe it was the fear or panic of lockdowns in a changing world. I don't know, but something snapped. Since then, we quit those jobs, sold off everything we owned, moved to New Mexico, then Wisconsin, then Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Shout out to my buddy Arcane Creations. Check him out on Instagram. Now I'm writing this in a sort of faux French chalet in Escazu, Costa Rica. The view from my window looks like second unit footage from Jurassic Park. My entire world has changed completely. Except for one constant. This podcast. I'm just writing these stories one sentence at a time and seeing where they'll take me. And you. As of yet, I haven't tried sponsorships or making any kind of money from this because I truly do just like telling stories. But what really makes it worth it is getting love and feedback from you. On Apple, I've got such warm, kind reviews lately from P.D. Lilly, Joe Godfrey, Hugh Casey, KB1130, Positively Witchy, SuperSimmons99, and Brooksburg. Huge thanks to all of you for your kind words and taking the time to listen to my story. Over on IG, shout out to Donna Kunda for all the supportive words, and Baswell1880 for pointing out an editing mistake I had in a previous episode. I don't know how many times I trip over my own tongue and use any number of expletives, and I try to edit all of that out. This one, this one slipped through, and I just had to leave it. Thanks, dude. I know I'm missing folks, and I'll make sure to give you some love on the next one, but I just felt a little overcome with gratitude today, and I wanted to share. There have been many times I wanted to give up on this thing, but each week, I see people are still listening. I'm still getting lovely messages, and it keeps me going. So thank you. Thank you all. You make this special. And now, let's get to number 13. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. There was the first 15, 20 minutes of escape, of running and ducking, looking over their shoulders, 
followed by two or three hours, maybe more, waiting. Greg Hughes wasn't sure how long they'd been hiding. His phone, without cellular service or internet, was about as useful as a hockey puck, so he'd left it in the stateroom. The sliver of sunlight coming through the door had dwindled and blinked away. Night had fallen. Carolyn was asleep next to him, her head alternating resting places between his shoulder and lap, and each time she stirred, Greg went over the timeline again, as if trying to produce logic and reasoning in a day devoid of it. Things on the Baroness had shifted from unnerving, sort of creepy at times, something to give his review some personal flair, to anarchic in a matter of ten minutes. When Zofia, the same woman who'd shared a seat at his table, placed the saw on top of the box, the crowd didn't move. Not at first. Some part of Greg, the rationalizer, thought it was just a show. Willed it to be. A misguided, ultra-realistic one, but a show nonetheless. Just entertainment. Judging by the short, blanketed silence that followed, the rest of the cruisers in attendance appeared to have the same collective thought. Was that real? Did we actually witness a man get sawed in half? Then, just like in a disaster movie, there was a single scream, an ear-piercing catalyst that set everyone else in motion. The one woman in the street, the starter pistol, who happens to see the monster first, shrieks and points. Then the crowd joins her, panics, scrambles. Cruisers begin to flee in every direction, running up and down aisles, jumping and stomping over chairs, and one another. Greg and the rest of Table 9 were in the back row, and one by one the group either wormed out of the aisle or jumped over the seat backs. They followed Chad. The man had said he was in the military, and maybe unconsciously, those that knew that were drawn to whatever leadership that could provide. Greg pulled Carolyn behind him and kept running. A throng of passengers were on their heels. Table 9 made it to the nearest elevator bank first, two rows of three cars in a glassed, air-conditioned atrium. To the left and right were darkened corridors with smaller arteries that led to administrative offices and the bridge. Everyone jammed their thumbs, fists, into the buttons, with no result. When the series of lights above the sealed doors neither blinked nor moved, the voices came fast and choked. Where are the stairs? What the hell is happening? Where are we going? The whole group, Greg included, was yelling for Chad to make the call, to get them out but he was alternating between slamming his open palm against the useless elevator button and peering down the hallway. If he responded, Greg didn't hear it, as their voices were drowned by the crush of other cruisers flooding the hallway, bisecting Table 9. An opened floodgate, the torrent of Hawaiian shirts and bikini tops, was fighting to get closer to the closed elevator doors. The roar of the mob was deafening. A hundred-plus bankers, lawyers, baristas, and mechanics crying out for both understanding and salvation. Then, the crowd surged forward, the front lines of hysterical passengers still smashing themselves into the elevator doors, as if enough force would provide their escape. Still clutching Carolyn's hand, he pulled her free of the sandwiched bodies and began running. He chose the clearest path, down a service hallway, that led him right back to the open air of the Lido deck. When they emerged through a pair of double glass doors, they were on the backside of the mini-golf course, and for the moment, they were alone. Carolyn was crying her breathing ragged and catching. Greg's head spun. Going left would take them back to the courtyard that connected the bloody theater to an assortment of drink kiosks and food stands. Right would lead them to the railing in the sea below. What are we doing? Carolyn managed. Her hand was slick in his. 
I don't know, he thought. Damn it, this is not me. I'm not a leader. Greg, Carolyn said. We can't just stand here. He could hear shaking in her voice, feel the vibration sliding down her arm and up his. And this got him moving. He put a hand on the waist-high fence, waved for Carolyn to grab hold. Come on, I'll help you over. Then they were navigating the cartoonish golf course they had just traversed a few hours earlier, when they were laughing and flirting, playfully ignorant of what was to come. The course was deserted, as were the pathways around the enclosure. The action, it seemed, was still near the theater. They crouched as they rounded windmills, peered around tiny, scaled buildings before turning corners. They were just running, not sure who or what was a threat, but putting distance between them and the magic show. When they had reached the waterfall, they heard gunshots. The first sounded just like a firecracker, but then there were two more. Screams. Breaking glass. The whole situation was foreign, like Greg was watching someone else's life. Someone braver. The fourth shot was louder, closer, and Carolyn began sucking in huge breaths. He was afraid she was going to hyperventilate. Greg pulled the woman under, then through the water, and they placed their backs against the faux stone wall. Greg felt something dig into his spine, and he reached back to find a door handle. Somehow, miraculously, it turned. Come on, in here. With the door closed and the sun blocked out, Greg fumbled for the light switch. When he found it, the couple saw that they were in a maintenance shed. A small room, no more than half the size of a standard children's bedroom, with a lonely bare light bulb screwed into a fixture above the door. The space had brooms and shovels, bags and buckets of chemicals, a pair of gasoline cans, and an over-the-shoulder leaf-blowing set. On one side, a metal shelf was littered with bottles and cans and boxes of paper towels. Greg breathed a little sigh and thumbed the lock behind him. Were those gunshots? Carolyn asked. I think so, Greg replied. Yeah. His brain wasn't firing on all cylinders. Countless thoughts were swirling, but he couldn't latch onto a single one. He felt as if he might just detach and float away. Are we safe here? Greg wanted to lash out at this. Not at Carolyn specifically, but reality itself. Safe? From what? Whoever was firing off rounds? A lunatic magician who is now in control of the ship and their lives? Fuck no, he thought. We aren't safe. But aloud, however, he said, Yes, uh, no one saw us come in here. Are you sure? Everyone was heading in the other direction. I'm pretty sure. The librarian was pacing in the small space, turning on her heels every three or four steps. She had a tuft of hair between her teeth and a hand pressed to her chest, like she was feeling for her heartbeat and attempting to soothe it. That was real, right? What? The captain? Greg pictured it again. It had only happened 15 minutes before, but he could still hear the gnashing of the saw's teeth as it separated the wood. He didn't want to admit that it was true, that any of this was. Honestly, right then he just wanted to go to sleep, to drift into the blissful ignorance of unconsciousness. This was a preferred state of being for Greg, in the real world. When things got out of hand, he'd just get back under the covers, let his friends and his boss keep calling, the stack of envelopes from debt collectors piling up. But he wasn't cruising solo now, so he simply nodded his head. But why? What does he want? I thought Donnie was a creepy asshole, but I didn't expect this. 
And Sophia, we just had dinner with her. Sure, it was awkward, but it wasn't... She trailed off, staring at the floor. I should have stayed in Pittsburgh. This always happens to me. Surely Carolyn meant just bad luck, not a murderous magic show. And despite it all, Greg picked up on this. And if he, too, wasn't trying to maintain some level of cool, he might have laughed. Carolyn realized it, too, because she said, Well, not like this, but I... I mean, whatever. Why are all those employees helping him? I don't know, Greg said. He could tell her brain was churning as fast as his. While he was quiet in times of desperation, he could see that Carolyn was vocal firing off questions and demands quicker than anyone could hope to field them. Where are they taking us? I don't know. Are they going to kill us? I don't know, Carolyn. This came out more forcefully than he'd wanted. Greg rubbed his palms over his eyes. Please don't take this the wrong way, but you've got to give me a minute. You have as many questions as I do, and about as many answers. I feel like I'm going to have a panic attack, or a heart attack. Some sort of attack. Me too, Carolyn said softly. This woman wasn't expecting him to have the solutions. He knew that. But was just looking for some reassurance. But how the fuck could he give that to her? They were floating in the middle of the Atlantic, without phones or any way to call for help, hiding in a maintenance shed, after watching the ship's captain divided into two halves by a psychopath who keeps chanting gibberish. This was not the time for a stock, everything will be okay, moment. But he needed to do something. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to snap. I'm just, I'm scared, I'm scared too. It's okay, Carolyn said. Her voice was back to some of its normal timber, as if she were summoning inner strength she had no idea existed. She squeezed his forearm and turned her back to him. We will get through this, she said. God damn it, Greg thought. I should have been the one saying that to her. He watched her as she rummaged through the shelf. She slid items around, then yanked a toolbox forward. Pulling it off the shelf, she set the case on the wooden ground with a clang and flipped up the lid. What are you doing? Greg asked her. Looking for a weapon? Now that would have been a good idea, Greg thought, rather than yelling at her. Great way to start off a relationship. Being a pussy who panics and freaks out on his girlfriend. Wait, was she his girlfriend? Not now. God, how easy it was to distract himself from problems at hand. Kneeling down, he said, Good thinking. Are you more of a screwdriver or an exacto knife kind of guy? I've never been much of a professional with either, Greg said, managing to get his own voice to a somewhat normal tone. Lady's choice. Carolyn handed him the knife. The metal handle was cool in his palm. Now, I guess we wait, Carolyn said. For the cavalry? Greg asked. Or the Coast Guard? Anybody. Someone will get in touch with the mainland. If they don't, people are going to start asking questions. Sitting back against the door, Greg pocketed the knife. Carolyn kicked the toolbox away and curled up next to him. She said nothing but the closeness felt like enough. After a half hour of this, huddled together, their heartbeats slowing, getting nearly in sync with one another, the librarian dozed off. Greg could hear her soft snoring. Maybe the tapering off of sudden fear and panic was allowing her to check out for a while. 
Maybe he was making her feel guarded somehow, like a protector. This was a comforting enough thought, though how much of it was true, Greg wasn't sure. Still, he let her sleep, and with her body pressed against his, Greg went to his safe space. This wasn't the right time, but Greg Hughes couldn't stop himself. He had to make a list. A mental list, as he had forgotten his yellow legal pad under the seat in the theater, of all the ways he would literally dismantle celebration vacations. His review would be scathing, unflinching. He would tear them open for the world to see. After the saw and the carnage done, there would be obviously larger consequences. But this was how Greg processed. How he was able to make sense of chaos in his head, and what happened before his eyes. Greg pictured a two-word headline, Death Cruise. And he would examine the massive failures of an industry leader in both safety protocols and hiring procedures. Surely there must have been some red flags in the hiring of Donald Fredericks. Where were the checks and balances? How could he be allowed to get to the point where he could execute the ship's captain in front of a live audience? How could all of the other employees, seemingly under his sway, have gotten through their own hiring processes unscathed? Someone, many someones, dropped the ball on this one. And it just so happened that they had a writer aboard. This could, would, be more than a review. Maybe the Times would pick it up. The Guardian. Cruise ships were a hot-button issue in the last decade, from drunk crewmen to missing cruisers, to the horrors during the pandemic. The Baroness itself already had a sordid history and was barely into her second voyage. The press would eat this up. There might be movie deals or interviews. And as scary as it was, some benefit might come out of it. He'd just have to wait, bide his time, and keep himself safe. Feeling Carolyn next to him, he thought, keep us both safe. These were the spiraling thoughts of a daydreamer, the lucid, feverish excitement one sometimes feels before slipping into a warm nap, when you're the hero. These, combined with the steady patter of the sloshing water beyond the maintenance door, were lulling, pulling him into sleep alongside Carolyn. And he was nearly there when Greg heard something else, barely audible over the waterfall. A voice. Continuing my sweep now, golf course appears empty. A response came, but it was muffled by the water. Copy. Heading there now. The man was louder. Closer. This time, Greg Hughes didn't freeze. He shook the sleeping woman next to him and whispered, Carolyn! Carolyn! She woke with a start. What? Where am I? Shh, Greg said. Someone's coming. And before she could ask anything further, the pair heard footsteps outside, heavy and wet. Greg pushed her forward and pointed at the metal shelf. Can you fit under that? I think so, Carolyn whispered. But what about you? Don't worry about me, Greg said. Go. She was halfway under the bottom shelf when Greg felt pressure against the door. He waved at Carolyn to get out of sight. The handle above his head shook. Did you lock this door? The man said. Again, there was a muffled response, and Greg assumed he was speaking into a radio. No, of course I don't have a key. Another garbled response. I'm sure there isn't anyone in there, the man said. It's just cleaning shit and paint. Yeah, Greg thought. No one in here. Keep moving. Seriously, the man said. Okay, fine. There was a pause, 
and instinctively Greg leaned forward. As soon as he did so, something slammed against the door. The handle, nearby tools, all rattled together. He's going to kick it down, Greg thought, and tried to get to his feet as quietly as he could. Not that it would matter in a few seconds. He had nowhere to hide, so he pressed himself against the wall, inside the arc of the door. Another kick, the doorframe groaning with the force. Greg winced. On the third, the door flew inward, bashing Greg's right elbow, and it took everything he had not to yowl in pain. Screws, metal pieces, tinkled on the ground, and the bulk of the intruder was inside the small room. Greg could see half of him from behind the door. The bare light bulb washed his blue and gold uniform in a sick glow. The buttons and zippers on his utility belt sparkled, as did the handle of his holstered pistol. Just turn around and leave, Greg thought. He was holding his breath. The radio crackled and the man said, What did I tell you? No one is stupid enough to hide in this. And then the door was being pulled away from Greg, and he was standing face to face with an employee he'd never seen before. The man still wore his name tag. Robert Freemer, Canada. Three years of service. How about that? Robert said. Looks like we do have a stowaway. Greg fidgeted, wanted to grab for the knife in his pocket or the gun on the man's belt. He did neither. Sorry, I... Save it, the man said, while pulling something from his belt. One side of the handcuffs dropped, dangling on the chain. With his free hand, the man tapped the butt of his gun. How do you want to play this? I... I don't think those are necessary, Greg stammered. He avoided looking toward Carolyn's hiding spot, hoping that some magical trap door had opened and took her away. He stepped away from the wall, and the employee lurched back to let him pass. Where are we going? Well, that's up to you. Depends on whether or not I believe you. Believe me? Yeah, we got the right to throw anyone we want overboard, if they don't cooperate. So if you tell me where some other little rats are hiding, maybe I'll just drag you down with the rest of the herd. See if Donnie can convert you with some of that preaching of his. Other rats? Greg said, stuttering. He could feel his whole body shaking. He knew if Carolyn wasn't in the room, he'd be pissing himself. I have no idea where anyone is. I just ran from the theater and and I came here. Alone? Yes, alone. What about that pretty girlfriend of yours? Greg felt a charge, a bolt of electricity coursing through him, both because he had no idea why this random man knew about him and Carolyn, and that his words were undoubtedly threatening. He'd been slowly inching toward the door, but now he stopped. Again, he had to halt himself from looking at the shelf and giving Carolyn away. I have no idea where she is. The man looked Greg up and down, grunted. He hitched a hand onto his belt near the buckle. Do you know what I'm going to do to her when I find her? Oh man, she's something. And what she did to you in your room? All that? From a librarian? Woo! Greg felt rage building inside of him, bubbling. These maniacs had watched them in bed? He felt sick. He felt ready to explode. I'm going to have to get me some of... Robert's words were choked off as Greg flung his body toward him, slamming a shoulder into his chest. The employee stumbled back and crashed into the metal shelf. Then Greg stood frozen again, still processing that he'd already attacked. His whole life, he'd been the one on the defensive. 
but not this time. Maybe it was because he had something to protect, someone he wanted to protect. Then a gun was leveled at his face. Greg threw his hands up as if the soft flesh and bone of his fingers would stop a bullet. I was hoping you would do that. Gives me an excuse to... Robert's words turned into an agonizing howl, and Greg peeped through his fingers to see Carolyn, half out from under the shelf. Her screwdriver was plunged through the man's thigh, and he was turning the gun on her. Again, Greg was outside of his body, watching himself snatch up a shovel and swing. The hollow thock sound of metal striking his skull was immediately followed by the report of the pistol. Greg let go of the shovel and grabbed at the size of his head. His eardrums felt as if they'd been torn in two. When he opened his eyes, Greg saw the employee doubled over a pair of chemical buckets, his head cocked unnaturally against the metal shelf. Carolyn was squirming out from under his body. Greg grabbed her. She was repeating, Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, but Greg could barely hear her over the ringing in his ears. Greg got her braced against the wall and held her close, not wanting to turn around and look at the scene. And they stood there for something like five minutes. It was as if neither wanted to, or could, move. Greg knew that others had heard the shot, and they would be coming. But again, he was still. It was Carolyn's voice that broke through the throbbing in his ears. Is he... I don't know. Greg let go of her and began stepping through the debris on the shed floor. His foot covered the hole the slug had bore into the wooden slat. Trembling, Greg knelt next to the employee and put two fingers on his neck. Nothing. His heart plummeted. He felt like his bowels would evacuate then and there. I just killed someone, he thought. I just fucking killed someone. Greg, is he... Without looking back, Greg shook his head. The silence between them palpable. This was a point of no return, as if everything before had been an illusion. But this was now no magic show. Now they were fighting for their lives. Grab the gun, Carolyn whispered. But Greg didn't move. We have to go. He felt her come up behind him. She put a hand on his back and placed something into his hands. He looked down to see the radio, a little green light blinking bright on top. She said, Well, now we can hear what they're saying. Greg watched her pry the pistol from the man's grip, and he allowed her to pull him to his feet. Outside, the star-filled sky was heavy and looming above them. A frigid gust of wind blew through the golf course. With Carolyn in the lead, they started running. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ghost Modernist. Lucky number 13 of season two. Woo! Please take a minute to review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps and sometimes gets the show higher in the rankings. And then I get to tell my mom, hey, look. The theme music for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you? <laughs>